Okay, so we're here to chat Canvas Safe. Um, you know, this was kind of put together, big effort led by Metal. Um, Jason is one of the lawyers that was involved, um, one of four law firms, I believe, in contributing. Um, so I think first off, uh, just, you know, how did it all come together? Um, Hua, uh, did you guys kind of go through your fundraising deal on two ADE questions? Um, what was sort of, you know, the, the reason for initiating this? Yeah, uh, well, Jason and I worked together when it has time at Atrium. Uh, so this actually was a project that was born out of uh, some of the work we did over there. And um, when we were working on our own fundraising and trying to figure out how to, to raise and adapt the safe, um, you know, we did it. And when we came back out and we transitioned to Mayfield, um, you know, we reengaged and said, hey, this is a good time to offer it again, especially because uh, the new licensees, especially on the equity side, were coming up. And uh, we've also seen a lot of uh, messes from bad raises that uh, people have had to unwind. Yeah. yeah you know, when so, you guys uh, say, I guess, you know, bad raises, you mean when investors kind of got blindsided by like 280E liability? Um, and for people who aren't sort of clear on what 280E is, it's basically if you're a cannabis business, since it's fairly illegal, you can't write off certain things. So rather than your effective taxes being 30 to 35 percent, it could be as high as 75 percent. Um, but but is that what you're referring to in terms of, you know, some, some is that more challenge or challenge? Yeah, I think we're talking more around like um, how to go around, uh, make sure you're disclosing, make sure you're adding people onto your your application. Uh, when the, you know, when your raise ends up converting, if you're using convertible and the interest, all this stuff that has been, um, could be pretty onerous during the process. But I think the one thing we are, we're also trying to tackle is just the, the compliance or the cost of capital through bringing in your counsel, their counsel, r- rounds of iterating and negotiating and Hey puppy. Um, yeah. And, and so like being able to kind of use what we did at YC to make it basically virtually free to, to raise money without having to go from it and having a neutral ground to kind of stand on um, that you can kind of like negotiate from there. Jason, if you want to add anything there, go for it. I was, uh, I was muted. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's a pretty good summary. O- overall, I think like the, just mentioning 280E just to, to tackle that point, the, the intent there was more so just a part of list of sort of risk factors that are unique to cannabis businesses that we just kind of wanted to highlight because you know, at this stage, I would say there's a smaller critical mass of funds and sort of more sophisticated investors in the cannabis space, but there's many more that are you know, maybe wealthier individuals or people who are learning to get into the space that might not be as knowledgeable. I think that's, you know, definitely shifting, but the intent of the safe was sort of address that knowledge gap as well and just make it a little bit easier to have, you know, more disclosure around the company's compliance obligations, maybe some hurdles or obstacles that, that, you know, canvas companies face and Mm -hmm. sort of just make that a little bit more clear before people put their money in. Cause, you know, I think as who was touching on, like we've run into issues where, investors don't realize like when the safe converts to preferred equity, 
what those disclosure obligations might be on their behalf and that, you know, they might do a DOJ background check that needs to happen and um, just making sure all those expectations are aligned up front. So you don't have investors, you know, being kind of shocked after the fact. Um, and then additionally, you know, just noting that touching on the equity applicant side of things, you know, where you have ownership thresholds that with equity businesses, we wanted the safe to address the potential for a situation where, you know, more than that threshold is sold when you, you know, let's say you, an equity business tries to raise a series A and they've already raised on a bunch of safes. And when those safes convert, plus all the new money coming in, all of a sudden they could be faced with a situation where that equity business is potentially in breach of their ownership or requirements um, because they might've sold too much of their company. So just kind of thinking through those types of scenarios and, you know, obviously it's not, an incredibly robust 20 page agreement, like you would see with like a series A stock purchase agreement, but we wanted to try to, you know, touch on like the most material issues at a high level um, that would, you know, hopefully alleviate some of the pain points that you see when raising money in the space and educate everybody in the process as well. Yeah. And when you guys first launched this, um, I think it's been what, two weeks now. Um, I'm sure you guys, both Juan and you, Jason, have had people maybe reach out to you who are going through the fundraising process. Um, what's sort of in the reception and what are some of the questions you might be getting? Um, to be honest, I haven't, I haven't had too many, uh, most of my clients have had just raised. So they've, you know, used some form of like what our pre-existing cannabis safe was in the past. Um, I haven't used this exact form because it's been obviously a very recent collaboration among firms and has been going through some iterations. So I think it's still pretty fresh and, you know, we love any feedback we can get from the community because that's only going to make it a better document moving forward. And that's why, you know, part of the reason it's great to have an open source document. Yeah, we had, um, we had a number of people reach out from the webinar that we did. Um, applicants that uh, are still waiting on their licensee or license and, looking to, to raise in the future. So aren't raising now, but will be raising. Uh, just really thankful that this exists or has some sort of language and resource to point to. Uh, we also sent this to the local regulators and state regulators just to give them a heads up on the, hey, this is what is out there to expect some, some standardization in how people are, are looking at fundraising. Um, and that's kind of where we're at today. So I think it's uh, good timing in that there will be, it looks like a lot of people are raising money. Yeah. <laughs> so here, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, curious about that, actually. So it's on two point. Um, one, I guess I'll ask first, since you're a Y Combinator company, but um, you know, don't know where the batches actually are today, but are there any in the current batch or the most recent batch that's a cannabis or a cannabis tech company? And then secondly, you know, I've been seeing stuff around Ease Momentum and sort of that program. Have you connected up with them with either the first class or the next class? To potentially use this document would make a lot of sense for those businesses. Yeah, I mean, for for YC, I haven't seen any recent cannabis companies come out, um, but there there is a portfolio. I think about eight or nine companies that have come through. Um, you know, they were they were helpful in approving uh, this safe, and allowing us to to license the language and open source it for everyone. So that's been great. Uh, from a momentum standpoint, no, we haven't really. Uh, yeah, we haven't really engaged there on sort of their new batch or their last batch and sort of where they're on the fundraising. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, this is freely open to anybody to utilize. Um, you know, we, we want people to download it, put it around there, see what their investors are saying and, and be able to raise money easily. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that announcement when uh, the first company raises using this campus page. So I'm, uh, I'll be watching. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure there's, uh, you know, plenty of law firms out there have their own forms of this. They just haven't shared it with the world. Like I know, as I mentioned, our clients that have raised on safes in the cannabis industry, we have a, we previously had, had a customized safe that they were all using. Um, I think this is the best version that we've come up with, of course, yet. And I'm, you know, really excited to see where it goes. And I'm, I'm sure we're going to start to see like variations of this pop up and, and at least it'll have been some kind of foundation for wherever things will land a, a year from now. Yeah. And, and touching on that fundraising point, uh, I think, you know, some people on this Zoom is probably interested in that. Um, so, you know, most recent fundraise, um, sort of, you know, who are you approaching these days? Is it still institutional? Is it high net worth? Um, and then Jason, after that, sort of working with your clients, um, you know, who's being approached if you're an early stage company raising, call it sub $3 million, you know, who, who are you going after these days? So I'm going to pass that over to you guys. Sure. Uh, for, for people on the call, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're not plant touching. We're an ancillary. So it's a bit easier for us. We can just use the regular safe um, and have been for, for YC. Uh, we raised a seed round in, in 2015 through Demo Day um, at Y Combinator. So we've been fortunate to, to have a really good base of investors uh, that continue to fund us. Um, and it's all been through safes. Um, my wife, on the other hand, has a, an edibles company. Um, she makes uh, these marshmallows called Mellows. Uh, she is plant touching. Not to be confused with the ice cream, right? That uh, has THC and is called uh, Mellow. Dude, I don't want to even get started on that. That's caused <laughs> so many. That, that caused so many problems over Thanksgiving. I was just like, "Why, guys?" Just, I know why, of, why of all the you... names. I mean, of all the names, yes. Just search. No. Um, Anyway, yeah, but she is raising, um, and she uses the, the cannabis safe, and she approaches uh, angels uh, primarily. That's where it's it's her, her majority of her capitals come from. Uh, she is in the, the seed round uh, or pre-seed, if you want to call it, still pretty early stage. Um, raises anywhere between twenty five thousand to one hundred thousand uh, dollars on a safe, um, so she's raised uh, about half a million dollars or more on that specific vehicle and it's been it's been solid everyone's been happy uh easy to close uh, easy to get the signatures everyone's on the same page um no discount no oh. you know you know just a, a cap and you know you can go from there yeah i thought you know and maybe i've been out of this for a bit on at least like the camp side or the campus tech side but I thought it was pretty standard due to a cap with sort of a 20% discount. So are you seeing with your wife and others that no discount and more cap or because, you know, you guys have three versions of the document, um, which one of the three and what's kind of that mix that's more popular? I just go straight cap, no discount. All right. Yeah. Uh, Jason, uh, are the clients able to do that or what's kind of the Yeah, same? yeah. I, I would say you know, like we rarely, you rarely will see just a discount. And you'll rare, you sometimes will see valuation cap and a discount. Most of the time we see just valuation cap. Uh, usually where I see it, uh, you get the situation where there's both is it's not so much in like an early stage round. It might be in connection with a bridge round where 
you know, there's a little bit of questions around how big that next round is going to be in valuation. And so the investor just really wants to protect the downside. Yeah. You know, it's kind of a fair ask because they're the bridge round and kind of going to get them hopefully to that next raise. So you'll kind of see that ask come in there. Um, but, you know, across the tech community and cannabis, I think, you know, the standard is just asking for valuation cap, especially if it's your first round, because at the end of the day, like, you're usually not seeing, especially in cannabis valuation caps and, and seed rounds that are super high. So if ultimately your next price round is going to be lower than that valuation cap, they're probably not going to do that price round anyways, because they're going out of business. So, you know, the discount is kind of like, you know, what's the point of, if pushing for that, it's kind of, so I guess, you know, in some circumstances you can give it just for the sake of giving it, but you know, it's kind of a, a moot point. Yeah. I feel like it's like a bit of incentive though, right. For having the discount. Well, I mean, like I think of it this way, right. If you're, if you're raising on like a $3 million valuation cap and your total rounds, like a million dollars, if you're not raising a price round where your pre-money valuations higher than three mil, that's probably, it's probably not a successful business at that point. And, it's going to be pretty tough to just not sell a ton of your company because you're not, you're not going to, it's, there's no point in raising money on a price round and paying all the legal fees and going through all of the, the administrative burden just to raise like, you know, $500,000. Usually at that point, we're talking, when we talk about a price round, you were talking about at least a few mil. So if you're raising like even a $2 million round on a pre-money of three, that's a pretty rough dilution. So at that point, it's like you're going to convert it's highly unlikely that you're going to see the next round be that low. That's usually, you know, as company counsel, how, you know, we'll talk to investors about it, but um, especially like when we're talking about safes with such low valuation caps, you're, you're pretty, your downside's protected because if the company doesn't raise beyond like, you know, above that valuation cap, then, you know, it's probably going out of business. So, so I guess we should also clarify, there's a question in the chat around the cap. So sort of going through, that scenario. So um, I'll let you take it since you're, you're the lawyer here. But if you're raising a million bucks um, and let's say it's a $10 million cap or a 20 cent discount and you can either do either or or both, um, you know, kind of explain that and, and walk people through that. Yeah. So um, as, as we were kind of touching on before, there are a few flavors of the safe. Um, one is discount only, which means that, you know, whatever the price is, for let's just call it your series A, the safe will convert at a price that's, for example, at a, a 20% discount to whatever that series A purchase price is. So if the series A purchase price is a dollar per share, the safe will convert at 80 cents per share. Raise 50 grand. Um, that means that it will, you know, you'll, it'll convert at, you know, however much stock, um, series A stock will be purchased $50,000 at a purchase price on a per share basis of, you know, that 80% of the series A price. Um, when we talk about evaluation caps, when we say that there's no cap, right? The valuation cap is what you'll see in a safe is it might say if you're a pre-money safe or post-money safe, there'll be some of the top that will say like valuation cap is $10 million, right? Or it could be five or three. That's essentially a mechanism for saying that we are agreeing that the company will be at least this valuable at the time that it converts into equity at the series A. And so that's basically setting what that conversion valuation will be for the safe for purposes of determining how much money uh, or how many shares a safe will convert into. So back to my math example, you, you, you would do 
let's say just to make it easy, it's a post money safe. You hold a safe for a hundred thousand dollars to ten million dollar valuation cap. That means the safe will convert into um well, I guess it doesn't matter if it's a hundred thousand dollars, but like you would take the math would be the ten million dollar valuation cap divided by the pre money fully diluted capitalization of the company, then that would give you your your conversion price for which you would t- you would do a hundred thousand dollars divided by that conversion price. So rather than saying it's a twenty percent discount, you get a much bigger discount because if like let's say the Series A valuation is like a twenty million dollar valuation, you convert at a ten million dollar valuation basically. So it's a steep discount on that Series A price. Which is your incentive for getting in early and having that Correct. Cap. Yep. So when we say that there's no cap on the safe, that's just saying there's no valuation cap function and it's purely just going to be a discount. Or you could have a safe that's what we call an MFN safe, but those are really, really rare. You don't really see those very often. Um, and that just basically means like I give you my money now, whatever the terms are of the, your next safes, I just basically can get those terms if they're whatever the best one is. Yeah, and that's probably reserved for the top, you know, 1% or so of companies who there's a ton of investor demand. There's already, you know, Sequoia or whoever else who who wants to lead that round. Um, and if you just want to get in, they can probably ask for that. Otherwise, probably not a thing for most companies, right? Yeah. Um, so that answer your question on, on the cap thing, hopefully? Sounds like it. Yeah. If there's any uh, additional follow-up, uh, please put that in the chat. Cool. Um, so, you know, in terms of continuing back on, on fundraising, um, as you go beyond sort of angel investors and high net worth, um, how have you helped clients sort of approach that next stage investor, whether that's a cannabis VC firm or, you know, some other institutions that are poking around? How have you navigated that with clients of yours? Uh, I mean, so, so usually... I mean, the cannabis space is definitely unique because I think the metrics that you have to show to raise are way different than what you would have to show if you're a tech company, um, especially if you're plant touching. So I think, you know, someone who's like a meadow type company, what they're pitching and what VCs are expecting to see are going to be a lot different than probably what when uh, Mellows goes to raise their Series A is going to be, um, at least from my experience and, you know, what I hear from our founder clients. Um, you know, you obviously by the time you're getting to like that series a level of a pitch, you're not really so much looking at high net worth individuals anymore. Um, you might, you might get lucky and there could be some family offices or a high net worth individual that's super strategic in the space. That's, you know, able to lead that round and it'll allow you to backfill the round with other people because, you know, they have enough clout where people are like, Oh, if that person's investing, we'll definitely invest in your company. Um, but usually, you know, there's, specific funds that are people approaching at that stage on the more like seed investment side of things, pretty much all of our clients are, there are some funds that are making seed investments, but a lot of it is high net worth individuals or another way to kind of go out and look for people to invest in your companies are, um, you know, I think it's, they're doing it more quietly, but there's some pretty notable venture partners that are at, you know, notable tech venture funds that are investing in the space. It's their own money. But, you know, they're writing pretty sizable checks. So if you have connections with those sorts of people, I definitely think it's worth approaching them because I think, you know, there is interest in the space. It's just they can't, their funds can't invest in it because. And, and you guys as, as, as sort of lawyers, sort of 
try and stay out of that for the most part, right? Like you're not trying to make introductions or maybe you will, if there's like a specific introduction is being asked for that makes sense or, or what's your stance on that? Yeah. I mean, so obviously like everybody's, you know, contact information is super confidential. So, you know, if a client asks if we know someone at a venture fund or have a connection with like a high net worth individual, we don't say like we won't make a, a connection. We're more than happy to at least reach out to that person with a pitch deck, be like, Hey, this person's raising. Are you interested in a conversation? And then, you know, if they say yes, we'll obviously, you know, do a nice warm intro, but we don't kind of just like blast out client decks to, you know, a huge group of investors that we know. It's more of on a very specific case by case basis where we're like, yeah, this client's got their pitch deck together and they're, you know, they're organized and I feel comfortable putting this in front of, you know, one of my contacts. Yeah, I would say for me, I, I rarely get the lawyer referral, but when I do, they're usually very filter, um, you know, pretty much there and, and ready uh, yeah. to raise. So I'm sure you guys uh, have a high bar before you share anything. We do. And I mean, I, I think it, it kind of works out somewhat in our favor because, you know, we're not a huge firm, so we can't just like, we, we, we don't have the bandwidth to, you know, work with everybody under the sun. So I think... um it's, it's been a little bit, you know, helpful that, you know, some of our clients are definitely when they're ready to raise are a little bit more put together. Um, we've been working with them for a long time. So it's, it's, uh, a little bit easier to, to kind of have the confidence that I'm like, yeah, the CEO will do a great job pitching whoever, you know, they want to get intro to if they get the opportunity. Yeah. I'm curious on this point, you know, we were chatting about like Harborside and sort of what they're doing around the IRS and 280E and that liability, which I think is nine or $11 million right now, um, earlier today. But have you been asked by any of your clients like earlier stage to sort of structure things to kind of get around a potential 280E liability or to dig into that? Or is that an area you guys haven't touched much into? Uh, I mean, you know, I have a few more sophisticated cannabis companies that are definitely, that's more of a concern for them. And, you know, there's, they have really good CPAs and we work very closely with them to make sure everything's structured in a way where the CPAs are super comfortable with it. And same with tax counsel. Um, what I can say is like, you know, there's no free lunch at the end of the day. And, you know, I think if you talk to a lot of CPAs, there's pretty much three buckets that you can be in for how you want to navigate 280 there's like the absolute compliance um we're just basically gonna let it screw us completely and you know i think it's pretty hard to make money with that bucket then there's the one where it's like you know you have some good arguments to make as to how you're going to categorize a lot of expenses and you know have like you know a really good business position and reason and it's somewhat like you know reasonably defensible but you know as we've seen, like a lot of this is really being litigated right now. So it's hard to give like, you know, any level of certainty. And then there's just like blatant disregard for 280E and just hope that you don't get audited. Um, so I think like a, a lot of people will kind of fall into that middle bucket. I haven't really worked yep. with anybody with just like the, the blatant disregard for things, but you know, we don't really, we don't give that specific tax advice. We usually are, we loop in specialists for that and they, and they kind of just guide as to how we need to structure things. And then we draft it how they, how they want. Yeah, it makes sense. I, you know, I looked at one retailer, we were looking at buying it and they were definitely kind of what you talked about more in the middle ground where you know, all employees of the retailer or dispensary were under a different subsidiary. 
Um, so for that reason, you know, they could sort of get the normal tax treatment because they were more so an employment company providing, you know, the staffing yeah. to Right, so it saves a ton on taxes. Um, certainly made a lot of sense. Um, probably somewhat questionable if someone dug in, but you know you kind of got to be in that middle ground to sort of make money in the space. I think. Yeah, and I think uh, retail is a lot different, right? Retail's got way more two eighty exposure. So I think when you look at also where you are on the supply chain, I think it kind of changes the positions you're able you might consider taking. You know, so for example, there's less two eighty exposure for cultivators than there would be retail. I think the closer you get to retail, the worse it gets, of course. Um, and, you know, also for a lot of brands that might not have a permit, the position you can take as to how, like, whether you would consider being subject to 280E or not. Um, so, I, I, you know, it, it really depends on sort of your appetite for risk and kind of where you are in the supply chain as well. Yeah, on that front, actually, um what do you guys think between Juan, you know, you and Stephanie have, have metals, mellows um, about sort of touching the plant and sort of, you know, more so being a licensing company or actually manufacturing the product, right? So obviously the best example is probably an old pal where they're just selling packaging. They're making sort of a licensing fee. They don't touch the plant. Um, you know, what, what sort of approach there? Because I think is, is your wife co-manufacturing today, right? No, she makes it. I mean, she's a license holder. She has her own kitchen. She went through building and planning and got all that done. Um, yeah, no, we, we, she didn't go the branding route, uh, cause being a license holder, actually having the, the ability of making the product was important. Um, and also there wasn't enough capacity that we saw in co-manufacturing where models that we felt were sustainable that would be long-term um, partners, um, you know, the shared kitchen mm-hmm. just started that license type. There's only a couple active. Um, and there's, you know, there's not that much, there, there aren't that many options. So, you know, she, she decided to go forth on getting a license. Yeah. Cause I remember even talking to some of the edibles brands, there's like three kitchens or something was, was my last conversation with some of these guys like a year and a half ago that like in all California could actually produce, uh, certain edibles at scale. Yeah, it's tough. I think, uh, you know, being at, you know, what is scale, right? Like at the same point of, you know, with manufacturing, you're tied to the distributor and how much margin can you actually get and how much resources you're putting into sales versus fulfillment. There's so many nuances to, to being a license holder uh, when you're thinking about where you can make up your margin. Um, Whereas if you're a license, you're just licensing your brand. I think your your entry point is really just uh, a, 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 an invoice that you send to your different partners uh, to pay you, depending on sort of where you're at. Um, yeah, I think the the models are TBD on like which is going to be more successful or not. But I think having consistency and control over making your product is important um, enough in the in the early days. I agree. I mean, I, I will, I will say the one, I mean, we represent a bunch of brand clients that don't have permits as well and we'll do a lot of their, their manufacturing deals and mm-hmm. them because they're constantly playing sort of, it almost feels like a little bit of whack-a-mole with like, who's a good partner. Oh, these people aren't that great. They screw everything up. Like you just kind of lose the, like the quality control, I think. And that's what's really nice and valuable I think, about having a permit. And I'm, I mean, obviously who can comment more on this, but, um, 
you know, a lot of our brand partners sometimes wish that they had a permit because it just would be, you know, it'd be more expensive for them. But if you've raised the money and you can afford to, you know, kind of build out a facility and do handle your own manufacturing, then I think, you know, there's a lot of benefits there because it's just like the roundabout ways of kind of branding, just owning the brand and entering the space that way. It, 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 there's a lot of regulatory and just kind of like relationship type issues that you wouldn't have to deal with if you kind of manufactured your own product. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I, I've seen some that kind of start co-manufacturing route. And then, you know, once you get to, you know, call it for me, defining scale as like a 10 million plus revenue brand, you start to make that discussion of, hey, if I raise five, can I build out and spend on CapEx? Um, or do I just kind of just keep going at it with this licensing model and then potentially use that to get to more states a lot faster, right? So definitely some considerations and, you know, you kind of make that call down the line when you're 10 million plus and, and can raise a couple million bucks. Um, cool. So I think let's let's wrap this up. Last minute. Uh, if anyone has any sort of questions, throw it on the chat. Otherwise, um, I'll kind of just leave it as you know. Any last comments from from both Juan and Jason on the Canvas Safe and sort of you know going through the, the startup fundraising experience as a, a Canvas company that you guys want to uh, you know, tell the crowd? Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I, I know Jason just mentioned it briefly, but you know, dilution is real. Uh, this isn't just raise as much as you money and you can on your safe on whatever valuation, especially if you're an equity applicant, there are certain ownership percentages you have to be aware of uh, in different local jurisdictions. Uh, typically, you know, what you want to do is raise 20% uh, of their, your valuation on the round and on each subsequent round that you're, you're, you're making. So, um, and Early day valuations are more of an art than science. Uh, it's more about vision and uh, than necessarily traction. Um, I think as you validate your idea and you get product market fit and you have that, then in the, the A and the B, you get way more serious and and how you're looking at it. Um, so you know, two tips: really watch dilution. Kind of look at that 20% on each subsequent round that you're you're diluting yourself and how much you're raising on your valuation. And, you know, as you're talking with different investors, know that you're, they're most likely on your cap table for life uh, of the company. Um, and know, you know, through different communication that you have, especially if you're plant touching or asking them for their license or you're asking them to be on the disclosures and they're not comfortable and they're making all these asks, just walk away and find another person. Um, there's, a lot of capital out there and you shouldn't have to work with people you don't want to work with in this world, especially as it comes to cannabis, because there will be ups and downs and you want investors on your side, every, whether it's up or down. Um, and, and hopefully they enjoy the ride with you. Those are my two cents. So take it away, Jason. Solid. Thanks. Um, I mean, I think that's a pretty good summary uh, and, and kind of dovetailing off a of dilution is just like really understand the math that, you know, comes along with what your safe terms are and how that's going to convert, you know, when, when you do ultimately raise your, your next price round. Um, and keep in mind, there are also two flavors of the safe, just like higher level than we were already talking and one's pre-money, one's post-money and, 
it does slightly change the conversion mechanics of both. Um, so really, you know, don't just kind of sign whatever gets put in front of you and don't just take sort of one of the forms that we put online and say, Oh, this is exactly all I need to do. Do a little bit of homework and, you know, run, try to put together your own model and play around with it. Because I think, you know, you'll also be much more educated and more efficient in conversations with investors, which in turn will actually probably benefit you and, and, um, make you seem like a much more competitive, you know, uh, investment for them. Um, yeah, and a quick point on that, Jason, on sort of the, the cap table math, um, you know, I, I know at Left Coast, we work with Carta to manage our cap table. Are some of your clients sort of at this stage working with Carta? You know, they kind of help solve it. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, so, yeah, you, you have two options. You can use Car- Carta or CapTable.io. The, uh, the only real reason I would say to start on CapTable.io if you're an earlier stage company, if you're going to raise like 30 safes from like a bunch, you know, a bunch of different investors, Carta is not the best option because they have a limit on how many users or people you can have on your cap table for their free version. So a lot of our clients will just start with cap table IO in the early days. So they don't have to worry about that. And then once you raise your first price round, everybody switches to Carta because it's just got way more functionality when it comes to managing all of your option issuances and um, just overall more complex cap table because you've raised a price round. Um, but both are great options. Uh, if, I think if with Carta, if you can keep it under 30 people or something like that before your series A, then it's free. Uh, once you break 30, they start to make you pay. So I would just dig into those numbers. You might be able to negotiate a better deal. I'm not sure, but yeah, but definitely use it. Don't use Excel to keep your cap table because that will never be accurate. I've never had a client send me their, when they say it, I'll send you the cap table and it's not Carter or cap table IO and they send me the explosion and it, they've raised, you know, at least 10 safes and have, you know, five people, other people on their cap table holding common stock. It's never accurate. So you can try your best, but something always gets screwed up in Excel. Cause you forget to add someone or something like that. So I used Excel. That's what I was thinking. I was thinking when, when you were like smiling while he was talking through that. But again, that was like earlier days. Maybe Cardo wasn't really a thing. I mean, people do it. It's totally fine. But it just means yeah. that you're gonna we're gonna ask you a ton of questions when you onboard as a client, and then we'll put you on cap table IO and clean it up. But it's just uh, safe. Yeah, some I think headache. that, and also having a pro forma that you can play with and yeah. mess with your yeah Which, applications. Yeah, CapTable.io, I don't know if the free version of Carta has this, but the free version of CapTable.io has scenario modeling. So you can, like, once you're, you know, your cap table is accurate, you can, like, say, I'm going to raise this much money with, and, like, see how that dilution is going to play out. So it's actually a pretty helpful and powerful tool for early stage companies. Cool. I haven't been, been on that. So I'll, I'll check it out, play around with it. Um, cool. Well, this uh, pretty much wrapped it up. Um, I think the last 10 minutes, if people are going to hang around, um, you can either do a networking through the entire room or just for uh, individual rooms, depending on how many people are going to uh, show their camera.